It is so noisy out there. Uh, so many people are on social media, so many people are making videos, posting photos. Yes, that's true, and yes, there's more media being created than ever, um, but I actually think there's an opportunity that comes with things being noisy in the marketplace, um, which is what is the way to stand out through the noise? Well, the way to stand out through the noise is to speak to somebody specifically about a problem that they're feeling in a way that resonates um, with exactly what they're going through right there. And I think the simplest way of putting that is personalization. That's David Cherry, our guest on today's episode of the Subscription Entrepreneur Podcast. Now, before we get started, I'd just like to say how excited I am to share this episode with you. You see, I did things a bit differently than I've done them before in this episode. Normally, I follow an outline that helps guide the conversation and structure the content in a way that's most helpful to you. But for this one, we tossed the script aside and simply had an honest conversation about marketing, business building, and creativity. And I think we created something really special. David is the founder of Death to the Stock Photo, a subscription business that provides highly creative photos to its members that are anything but ordinary. If you've not heard of them, chances are you've seen their photos somewhere. Traces of their work can be found on websites, blogs, and social media accounts on all corners of the internet. David created Death to Stock six years ago and successfully grew the company to over 500,000 subscribers and $1.5 million in revenue without the use of advertising. He's a huge advocate of word-of-mouth marketing and shares advice from his experience on how you can best implement it in your business. After building and growing Death to Stock, David now focuses his time and efforts on helping companies and brands succeed with effective, personal, and most of all, human marketing. If you've ever felt like your marketplace is too noisy for you to stand out in, this episode is for you. David shares how you can find your voice, create content that resonates with your audience, build momentum, and take the right next step in your business and marketing efforts. If you're tired of hearing regurgitated tactics and techniques, this episode will be a breath of fresh air for you. So without further ado, let's get to the episode. I'm your host, Eric Turnison, and this is episode 118 of the Subscription Entrepreneur Podcast. Hey, David, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks so much uh, for having me on. I really am looking forward to it. I'm so happy to have you, David. Really appreciate you taking the time to spend and do this with me. So normally the way that I start the podcast is I ask the guests to say a little bit about their background, but in your case, I don't want to do that. And what I'd like to really just spend our time and focus on during this interview is talking about stuff that you're interested in right now, you know, because I think uh, a philosophy you may share, correct me if I'm wrong, stuff that we've done in the past has its value and is important in terms of where we are now and where we're going but there's not so much value in actually rehashing it and going over it in detail. Yeah, no, I, I love that. I think uh, I love that you're also um, diverting from maybe the, the typical uh, show script to, to let things kind of unfold naturally. And um, I think that's definitely something that I share. I think, you know, I, my hope as well is that people who are, who are listening today, it's, you know, it's the most current version of, of what I'm seeing. And I'm happy to discuss uh, some stories from the past that might help illustrate things. Some, um, you know, some of the early days of the business, just so I can let people know that yes, I struggled too and and had my share fair pro- fair share of problems. But um, the market changes really quickly, um, and I think what people are interested in and attracted to in business changes quickly. Um, and I think we can both talk about uh, some of the things that might have changed, and also some of the things that I think don't change, which are the the sort of truths that you can buy into um, that I think lead to a more sustainable way of growing your business, um, which is sort of how I, I, I grew mine. That's a good place to start. From your experience, what are some of the things that come to mind for you that don't change? Yeah. So the, the question for a lot of businesses that I get right now is, it is so noisy out there. Uh, so many people are on social media, so many people are making videos, posting photos, um, writing their blog, et cetera. Uh, it's so noisy, right? And yes, that's true. And yes, there's more media being created than ever. Um, but I actually think there's an opportunity that comes with things being noisy in the marketplace. And this is something that I don't think has changed. Um, I don't think will change for a long time, um, which is what is the way to stand out through the noise? Well, the way to stand out through the noise is to speak to somebody specifically about a problem that they're feeling in a way that resonates 
um, with exactly what they're going through right there. And I think the simplest way of putting that is personalization. So, you know, every day everybody is walking down the street or people are walking to work or getting coffee or whatever, and they've got problems that are milling around in their head um, that they're pondering on their way to work or, you know, on their way to a meeting or whatever. And, you know, people might come up and try to sell those people something. There might be somebody who is passing out flyers on the street, or there might be somebody uh, who is trying to get them to sign up for a cause. And the truth is those people don't care about that cause. That's noise, right? People just walking up to you on the street, trying to sell you on something. That's more noise to your day. And the more people that do that, the more you want to tune them out. But if somebody were to come up to you and mention a very specific problem um, that you are actually pondering about and telling a story in a very personal way that shares with you that they might be able to help you uh, move past that problem, well, then suddenly we snap to attention. Suddenly uh, we have all the attention in the world for people who are speaking personally and directly to us. Um, so I think one way that sort of tried and true forever um, way that, that marketers or brands or even people can stand out apart from the noise is personalizing and, and speaking directly to individuals and not the masses. And I think the problem is if you're trying to compete in the noise by adding more noise for everyone, well, then you're not signaling to that one person, to those few people who have a problem that they're hoping somebody um, comes up and solves for them. And if that was vague, I'll give an example. Um, this is true. Uh, a friend of mine back in Columbus, his name's Chris, um, we were getting together at a coffee shop and um, I was just catching up with him, asking him how things are going. And he's like, man, every year at this time, stuff in my family just gets kind of difficult. And the reason stuff gets kind of difficult is because my daughter, uh, it's actually her birthday, which you think would be a great thing, but she has some severe food allergies. She can't have uh, you know, nuts, dairy, um, one of them leads to severe reactions that maybe you have to go to the hospital for. And he's like, man, I'm just, I just get bummed around her birthday because we can't give her that typical experience of what most kids get with their birthdays. They get to go to the pizza shop. They go get to go get ice cream. You know, they have all their friends out and we always have to host it at home. And, you know, my wife puts in so much work putting it together, but I just wish we could give her the experience that most kids have on their birthdays. And as he was telling me this story, I sort of thought to myself, what if somebody was sitting next to us at the coffee shop and they leaned over right at that moment and said, hey, I couldn't help but hear that story you just told. I totally get where you're coming from. Actually, my son has severe food allergies and we had trouble every year on his birthday throwing a party for him that gave him the same experience as all other kids. But you know what? We actually ended up doing something about it. We opened a gluten-free, nut-free, dive-free, uh, health-certified kitchen. Um, it's a pizza shop that's downtown, and we have a, a back room that's specifically for hosting kids' birthday parties. I would love to host uh, your daughter and all of her friends at our pizza shop. You guys can come by this week to try the food and make sure it's a, a place that you want to host at. Um, but I think it could be really helpful to you. And can you just imagine his reaction, my friend's reaction to hearing that story? Can you imagine how happy he'd be to be able to tell his his family that they now have a place to go, uh, how excited he would be to know about this product and excited to purchase from a business? And the reason I tell that story is because that was a personal relevant message that spoke to a direct problem that he was having. And when we do that, we have all the attention in the world. Right. But- that's called relating, right? We're relating, like, and as humans, I mean, that's the thing. When we feel like we're being related to, there's something that really eases up and connects us with the person who we feel like we're relating with. But your your story opened with listening, right? Yep. Right. You didn't jump to the problem because I feel like that's such an important step, and and it's something that marketing so often. Uh, blatantly ignores, I would say, um, because you're just throwing the problem solution in somebody's face. And I think if you haven't developed some sort of rapport, even if they have that problem, then it won't necessarily land. 
I think you're 100% right. And here's how we could sort of uh, prove that out. Imagine we are sitting there and, uh, you know, I just heard him sharing that with me. And somebody walks up and they go, hey, I couldn't help but uh, hear your discussion. I got something for you. I got a new Ford truck (laughs) that is available and it's perfect for mulching. And, uh, you know, you can come down and and I could show you the car and we can drive together and maybe you want to purchase it. Like the complete opposite of what you want to do, right? So I think you're spot on. I think it is an empathetic understanding. It is a consideration. But how do you do that? Mm, it's a great question. How do you do? Because it's it's clear. I mean, it's it's even not necessarily clear when you're sitting across the table from somebody. I mean, you know, it's not always easy to relate to everybody. But how do you do that when you don't? When a you you're not sitting in front of that person, and b you're trying to you're trying to target a larger number of people. Yep, it's a great great question. So there is a way to personalize at scale, and I'll get to that in a little bit. Um, But how do you, I think what you're really asking is how do you get the privilege of listening to a potential customer? Would you agree? So if that's the question, and I think that's a great question to ask, and I think it's very relevant, is the way you do that is you have to go first in sharing your own story and your own vulnerabilities. And so when we tell our own stories, when we discuss things that happened in our past, problems that we've overcome, we open the door for other people to share similar problems. And so um, I think probably even if the the hypothetical person sitting next to us at the coffee shop hadn't have opened his own pizza store, they still would have built rapport um, because they shared this common problem in their past. And so the way to get someone to open up to you about something that they're feeling, a problem that they have, something that they're desiring or wanting to become is by first and foremost sharing that yourself. And I think that's the way that a community forms. Communities are really built around one person who had a perceived deficiency. They they felt like something uh, was wrong with them. Something was off. They felt like they were different than everybody else. And when they take that perceived deficiency and they flip it and make it not something of shame, but something of value that actually puts you in the club, that's the way that you build a community. And so um, what that hypothetical friend at the coffee shop did was uh, he had a problem in his life with his own son and these birthday parties. He built a space that celebrates people who have this perceived problem um, and welcomes them and actually makes it sort of a good thing, (laughs) you know, to have that. Now you're, you're sort of the special person here. So I think that really is the way that a community forms. One person has to flip the shame they feel about something they're having a problem with and sort of let it be known that it's something that they're either working on or have worked through. And if that sounds like you, if you sound like uh, someone like us, then you're welcome to this group. And, and I think through sharing those stories, that's where you begin to hear replies from other people, other people saying, I'm so happy you brought up this discussion. Nobody's been having this discussion. I've been, I thought I was the only one, right? So I think that that to me would be the first way of getting the privilege to listening to somebody um, is, a, is a bit of courage and understanding, um, I guess, what I just discussed. And in terms of particulars, um, do you have methods in terms of how you deliver those messages, in terms of how you share that um, are more successful than others? I think it's another good question. So let me answer the the thing that I posed a little bit earlier around how to personalize that scale. Um, and then I'll try to get to uh, how you can tell a story that might resonate in that way. Um, so the problem is, so if personalization is this way that you can actually attract people's attention, if, if everything is noise, uh, you know, how do you attract someone? Well, you can do it by personalizing and by connecting and by being empathetic, like you said okay, well, I'm trying to build a big business. How do I personalize at scale? Like it's so hard to email all these people and and listen to all these individual conversations, right? Well, one way of personalizing at scale is recognizing that you don't have to tell the right story every time. You don't have to tell the perfect story. You just have to keep sharing stories in different ways 
that hint at the same themes. So um, with my newsletter, let's say, and I think with anybody's newsletter, what is really the goal of a newsletter? Well, to me, the goal of a newsletter is to is to personalize at scale. It is to tell stories that won't resonate with every single person on my list. Every email I write, 80% of people, it's not the perfect email for them, maybe more. But 5% of people, let's say, for the 5% of people that day, maybe that one story resonated perfectly with them. And then little by little, you know, chipping away 5% at a time, suddenly over the course of months, you've hit that perfect story for different people in your audience. So I think, I guess the first thing I'd say is that the good news is you don't have to tell the perfect story. Uh, it's more about continuing to address similar themes um, in different ways and almost by mistake, but also by intention, then certain parts of those stories will resonate with different people in your audience. So I guess my goal for a newsletter, let's say, is really um, I just want to connect with a few people every time. And the people who feel that strong kind of connection through the story, they're going to stick around until the next time it hits like that. Um, and that's enough to sort of lead them forward. Um, and I'll wait for a second here if there's something you want to bring up, and but then I can get into some more maybe tactical storytelling uh, structures. I think that from a, a delivery standpoint, it definitely helps to focus on a few rather than a whole. And when I imagine doing that, immediately my mind doesn't work as much to try and think of what the right thing to say is. It's more like, what do I feel like saying? What is my message right now to this small group of people? And when I imagine doing that, I realize that anytime that I give a message where it has some root or seed of interest within myself, there's something um, intangible about how that's delivered and how it comes across that makes it more interesting. Like I'm just imagining somebody on stage reading the same exact words, but one, one person is interested in what they're saying and the other one's not. The message is the same, but the involvement of the person delivering it is different and therefore engaging to the audience. Do you find that that's something that helps you even in something like print where, you're, where, where your face isn't involved? your mannerisms aren't involved. Yes. I think that is very, I think you've pointed at a, um, an honest nuance that exists that is under discussed. Um, but 100%, I do believe that the intention, uh, we could call this whatever we, we want to say, uh, the energy behind it, the intention behind it, um, how personal we're feeling it in that moment. I 100% think that that does translate um, and there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, but maybe maybe a way of making that something that somebody listening can sort of take home and think about as like an easier way of approaching this, because I think there's a lot of nuance to getting yourself into that space. Um, and that's like maybe a bigger discussion. But I, I 100% I agree. And I think that's a beautiful thing to point out. Um, when I started my second newsletter, um, it's called Creative Caffeine. The idea was exactly almost what you just said. I wanted. I, I had this big email list, and I was sharing a lot of visuals um, with my first company. And I sort of said, "What if I did everything the total opposite? What if uh, there's no visuals in this message? What if it's just text? And what if instead of speaking to a lot of people, I write this email like I'm writing to a friend? And I actually picked sort of a friend. And I, when I would write the text, I would actually write like, "Hey, their name." And so it was supposed to almost feel and sound like an email that you would get just from a friend out of the blue, you know, checking in or seeing how things are going or sharing a story. Um, and I found that to be pretty helpful in, I think, breaking out of what you're saying is the problem, which is feeling like you should say what people think you should say or um, putting yourself into a box almost by trying to say the right thing instead of saying what's natural. Um, and And... Maybe it's not for everyone, but I think it is. I think most of us can really have that power to connect when we tell stories, when we write, or when we're on video. Our problem is we think we have to do something different. We have to, we think we have to have this other method, or we have to sound a certain way. You know, well, there's the PowerPoint conundrum. You think that oh, I need to hit my bullet points exactly, and then it, and then that move that works against the natural 
flow of being whatever you feel like being. Yeah. And humans are amazing BS detectors. And that's why we pick up on the smallest changes, maybe the word choice. Um, and there's a great example of this actually that I'm just reminded of. Uh, Ira Glass, who's the NPR reporter, uh, he, he plays this clip when he first started out as a reporter for NPR and he's huge now and he's got a bunch of good shows. Um, but he, he plays it when he goes out and speaks about what he does because it's him in his first year of being a reporter using a reporter voice. And so his tone and the way he's talking on the radio sounds absurd because it's like the most over the top reporter-y sounding voice ever. And now he's the total opposite and everyone loves him for it. Um, so I think that's a really good example of somebody trying to be something they're not. And that's a way to lose attention and not gain attention versus what he found was by being himself, by sharing naturally, by just using this regular voice. Um, we don't have to do all this work, right? We don't have to, we don't have to be all this stuff we're not. And I think that's actually the hardest thing for people is it's almost more of an unlearning, uh, process. Um, but I, maybe that's a good sort of quote, how thing to think about is, you know, writing to a friend. I, I've heard someone say that the best way to think about public speaking is to think about you're just talking out loud to yourself um, when you're on stage. Um, I haven't tried that, but you know, maybe that's a maybe maybe that's a helpful example of what we're talking about. How do you find the voice? And I think you were just getting at this. And, and the word that came to my mind is you said unlearning. The word that came to my mind was uh, allowing, which to me are pretty very similar, right? Because um, in allowing who you truly are, the things that you've learned that make you not who you are, are naturally fall away. And then you just are who you are, um, which can be a challenging um, thing to go through on an individual level. I have had to go through that with my company. I'm pretty sure you've gone through that with each of your projects. And it's a continuous thing because with each project, we can make the mistake of trying to define ourselves again, who we are. But like you said at the beginning, things are constantly changing. Why should we become static? I think that that's a big part of branding. And this whole thing of like labeling things like avatars, branding, marketing, et cetera, I think goes, it, it actually does a disservice to what we're actually trying to do because by labeling it, we think it's a static thing. Something you can learn in a book, tactics you can follow, strategies you can execute, right? Like that you can just repeat and copy. But when we were talking about the newsletter and this kind of intangible thing that comes through, I mean, I'll say a bold statement. You could do anything. It doesn't really matter what you do, what you say or what, it, but if you're genuine, that's going to be a lot more powerful than if you try to copy 10 of the most successful things that have come before you in your space. Yes, this is all beautiful. And thank you for uh, having this discussion and hosting this discussion because I don't think it gets talked about enough. Um, I'd also point out, and I, I agree on the change piece. Um, I'd also point out that many people who become successful become a parody of themselves because they don't adapt again, like you were saying. And so I think there's this initial problem of finding your own voice. And then there's this problem of you found your voice, but now you can't find the next you know, authentic version of your voice. And you become obligated and bound to what worked in the past. And you're chasing what you had instead of moving forward in the future. And and so this is a problem that can arise for people at any stage of business. Um, and that's why I think this is an important discussion to have and, and why I was saying thanks for having it. Um, I think related to that, change is more present than ever before. And it's a hard thing for us all collectively to adjust to. Our technology is changing very quickly. Uh, you know, it feels like our society is changing very quickly because of our technology. And the thing that needs to flip in people's heads is that that change is future opportunity and it's a good thing. And how can we essentially step in and use that change to get to the next level to actually grow? And so I think the, the common response is to dig your heels in as change approaches and this is never effective. And in fact, it keeps you, if you, if you understood it, that actually keeps you uh, moving backwards and puts you in the past, I don't think you would do it, but it feels like the safe thing to do, which I totally understand. Uh, we're used to being a certain person. We're used to 
acting the way that we act, you know, in those previous grooves that worked for us. Um, but what's exciting is that actually change is this positive sort of rubbery material that we can use. And when we use it in the right way, we, we get even better. We end up at an even better place. And my mind's taking me to uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger, who, you know, really leaned into change at multiple times in his life from a bodybuilder. Uh, actually, he was a real estate millionaire before he, I think, was a famous bodybuilder. Maybe it was the other way around. Bodybuilder, real estate millionaire, governor, actor. Um, those were all positive changes that he made in his life that actually expanded who he was. Um, and what a shame it would have been if he had doubled down and dug in to only being uh, just the bodybuilder. Or just the actor. Um, I mean, that'd be horrible. Yeah. For a lot of reasons. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. For different reasons. <laughs> Too much, yeah. We have many more Arnold movies and then we'd all have to suffer. Um, but I think that's the difficult thing. Uh, and Josh Waitzkin, who is both the, uh, was the champion in the world at chess and also was the champion in the world at jujitsu, which is pretty amazing combo. Um, I really like this one thing he said about how at some point you realize when you're doing jujitsu that it's actually the, the move that your opponent makes that is the thing that is your opportunity. And so he's actually sort of awaiting the strike and how he essentially how he absorbs or maneuvers or uses that strike against him is how he wins. Um, and I just like that visual of, you know, this change that's sort of coming at us and, and how we respond to it is actually, um, the way forward, but it's not a natural thing. I don't think for us to, to, you know, do it. And I think it's because also things are changing quicker than they used to. Well, and I think I agree with you we can get into a diseased state where it's not natural, but I think it is natural. But but I think the thing that creates the, the state of disease with change is there's this thing in business where constant growth is always the thing that's sought. There's always this idea that our metrics should continue to improve, uh, growth should continue to happen, income should continue to increase, it shouldn't wax and wane, but that's not how nature works, right? You know, imagine a rose that never stopped blooming and took a rest for the winter. But yet, rose is the, one of the most beautiful things in the world and gets so much attention. But yet, in business, we we kind of there's this disregard for the seasonality, right? Which can end up meaning that we're a ignoring change. And B, the, therefore, we can't respond to it because we're ignoring it. Yeah. I mean, I think everything does have uh, a bit of a cycle to it. I think one way of a different way of looking at this growth problem uh, of always feeling like you need to grow in one direction is, is actually realizing that more growth happens when you make a lateral move. And so, yes, there's a time. Uh, I like to say, like, I, I really like um, Seth Godin's Purple Cow. Um, there's a time to create the purple cow and there's a time to milk the cow. Um, but if the cow's out of milk, the best thing is sort of this lateral move into, into something new. And so um, I actually think it could work for the person who does want to optimize for growth. You know, uh, Google is a great example of a company that, and I don't know if they've found huge success with this yet, but, you know, they invest an absurd amount of money into R&D um, because they realize that what got them here is not what will get them there. So I think probably this, this notion of um, change is is available to people who are high growth minded or or not. Um, you know, I think if we're bringing this down to the the ground level of somebody listening right now, another way of kind of having this discussion is to say that, and this is something I see with businesses all the time. Um, it, it's so funny, and I'm sure you probably felt this way, and, and probably everyone can relate. You know, you think that when you finally get your fifth customer, you know, then you're going to be really rocking. Let's say you're just a, a freelance photographer and you're starting out and it's so hard to get those first two customers. And you're like, man, if I could just get customer number three or four, I would just be set. And then maybe really quickly or maybe after a few months or whatever, you get four customers and suddenly you've got a few customers on retainer. And the minute you get those customers, you take them for granted <laughs> because you're already looking at the next thing. And what I think is a mistake that a lot of brands, big and small make, people just starting out make, is they forget how valuable 
the people who are already listening, the people who are already raising their hand and saying that I want to work with you or I want to read your newsletter, we, we chase numbers and forget the value and meaning of the people who are already there. Um, and so I think it's like a really great opportunity and privilege, I guess, to think that there's 10 people that you could change. I mean, that to me almost sounds outrageous in a good way. Like, man, what if I could change 10 people in my life? And the good news is that's pretty doable. Um, but I think we also have this inclination to reach that goal and then suddenly take that for granted. And so when I work with companies, um, and I think this is effective from a business standpoint, like I said, from a growth metric standpoint as well, I'll work with a company and I'll say, you know, if you were to tell me your five best customers, who are those five best customers? And, you know, usually they have an answer. They say, of course, Jennifer, so-and-so or whatever, like, oh, we get emails from so-and-so all the time. I'm like, that's awesome. What if there were 10 people who have been almost essentially the same in terms of how they're using your product, um, how engaged they are on your newsletter, et cetera? What if there was 10 other people just like that, but but you've never sent them anything special? You don't know what their name is. You don't pay any attention to them. Wouldn't you like do something if you knew who those people were? And almost always people are like, yeah, of course. It's like, well, that's happening right now. There are people in your audience who are already saying that they care about what you do, that they use your product. But when we're always focused on new leads in the funnel or whatever, sometimes we neglect them. Right. It's like you're looking at uh, the metrics of how many click-throughs do we get? How many uh, new um, subscribers do we get to the newsletter? Um, but you know, I've heard you say something to the effect of everyone knows that word of mouth marketing is the most powerful form of marketing, but nobody is actually spending the time actually creating word of mouth marketing. And what better word of mouth marketing than taking those 10 people right in front of you who are really successful, doubling down on them. I mean, what better sales pitch could there be from somebody who's happy with your service and your product, having the opportunity to tell somebody else, being at that coffee shop, at that table, listening to somebody else's problem and be like, oh, you know, actually I use this product and service and they're freaking awesome. They're going to go to your website. They're not even going to look at your pricing. They're going to sign up. And there's nothing that we can do as a company that's more powerful than that vote of confidence. Because people who already buy from you and like you typically know people who also would like you and buy from you. And so uh, I, I like the example from the, the story because uh, if, you're the, if you're the person with um, a child who has a severe allergy like that, you've probably found some other people you know, it's just like such a good bond and sort of signal. You probably know all the other families, right? You're, you've probably been hosting dinner with all those other families. And so, um, yeah, I think, you know, people like to find people like them. And so, yeah, it, it's sort of a great way to tap into new audiences is by expanding with the people who are already listening and already caring. Now, do you have specific ways that you will coach um, your clients and businesses on how to discover these people and then how to methods for how to interact with them in a more engaging way. Yeah. So I can explain the general philosophy. To me, there's really two things you're asking about right now. The first thing is uh, sort of the tooling metrics discovery. And then there is the, what do you actually do? How do you engage with your best people? Um, and that to me is the science and the art. So the science is sort of the data. And then the art is how do you move people um, to act or, or how do you find, how do you get your best people to, to talk about you? So I'll address those one at a time. Um, my personal philosophy, and this was something I saw sort of, but it didn't really codify until after building uh, my first company was this idea of what I call the commitment curve, which is really that every business and every brand is a growing level of commitment between you and your customer. And so if you picture like a hockey stick curve going from left to right, you know, all the way up to the top right of the graph, um, the beginning of that curve is what people would say is the beginning of your funnel, quote unquote. So it's, um, that's where your website would lay. That's where uh, your newsletter would be. Maybe it's your Twitter. It's, it's where people sort of first find out about you. Um, and they need to take an action to commit with your brand. So um, they might follow you on social media. They might respond to an email. They might book a call. Uh, with your company. And basically, as you go from left to right 
on this curve, it's essentially building more commitment with that person. So if you think about Airbnb, um, they're a great example of this. You know, maybe I've heard about Airbnb from a friend and, and now I'm kind of on this curve. I'm heading, you know, trending upwards on this curve. And then I, I check it out. My friend refers me and I sign up. Okay, well, now I'm further down the curve. Okay, now I sign up and I stay. Now I'm further down the curve. Um, and eventually, Airbnb did such a good job building commitment, a committed following to what they were doing. They actually had people protest on behalf of cities that were trying to remove them from existing. Um, and so that's like the way top right end of the commitment curve is somebody who is um, so bought in that they're willing to essentially go out there and uh, you know rally for you. So the science to me is what you could call this your customer journey or whatever, but what are these steps that somebody can take with your brand that deepen their level of commitment with you as a business? Is it following you? Is it replying? Is it commenting on your Instagram? Is it joining a 30-day challenge? You know, there's so many. Um, and sort of what's the general order that people might go through? You know, some people might go quick. Some people might skip ahead. Um, so that's kind of the data piece. And there's so many data analytics tools. Um, I actually think this is probably the more commodity part of this process is finding the data. Uh, Intercom is great. Mixpanel. I mean, yeah, Google Analytics, whatever you want to use, there's plenty of ways to start understanding, I guess, from a data perspective, who's following you, who's using your product, et cetera. Now, the, the bigger question in my mind is, okay, we know this group of people follows us on Instagram and you know they sign up to our newsletter or whatever, or we just know that this group of people is here on the curve. How do we get them to go to the next step in the curve? How do we get somebody who's bought from us to become a referrer? How do we get someone who's signed up to buy from us? And that to me is the art of marketing. It's the art of community building. It's the art of sales. Um, and there's a lot of discussions I think to be had around that. And I'm happy to sort of illustrate maybe some stories um, from the past, but does that sort of make sense? I know we're talking on on a, on a mic here, so without the visual, it's a little harder to describe, but um, the, the intention is to grow your commitment over time with groups of people who care. Um, and the last thing I'll say is that when we're discussing like, hey, what about those 10 people that like really love you, but you don't talk too much? They're the people on the top right of the curve that you sort of you know, ignored and and are probably the best people who might then go refer to you. So I like to work with companies personally, not at the beginning as much as businesses who are already established that uh, that have a community already, that have some uh, people moving through that. And then how do you sort of optimize that tail end? How do you kind of grow the deep commitment on the top right? And for those of us who maybe don't have the benefit of working directly with you and maybe we're on our own and we know we have an issue, are there some helpful perceptive tools that you have for yourself where you're coming into a situation, it's a company and they're well-established, but they've they've got some efficiency issues in that upper right corner, um, not engaging in their, their top people enough? Because if we can't identify where the problem is, like with the jujitsu metaphor, we can't identify how to respond to it. So how precise do you need to be in identifying what you're going to go after when you're determining what steps to take to improve a business? So I want to give two answers to this and they're opposing. On one hand, I'm finding with clients that, okay, so the first way I'd answer this is that problem discovery is half the battle, if not more. So if you're feeling stuck, and this could be at any stage, anything you're working on, uh, it's possible that you're not working on the right problem, and that's why you're continuing to do things, add tactics, work harder, and not get uh, different results. So definitely isolating the problem is like probably where you want to start, no matter what you're doing in business. So I, I do think that's very important. The second thing I'll say is that I feel like when I work with clients, I need to be very precise about this. Um, in fact, that's probably a lot of the value add that I bring is really helping them see the right area to focus on in what order. And so I find myself spending a lot of time thinking about a lot of different material, a lot of different actions, a lot of different problems, et cetera, but then really refining that down 
to just something that's the specific thing right now, because I know there's sort of an order of operations here that will lead to the most benefit and working on the right thing is better than working hard on the wrong thing. So that's, that's like, I guess the general philosophy now with somebody who's starting out um, and you're feeling like you're stuck. Honestly, I think our discussion earlier about finding your voice is really the most helpful thing because a lot of problems in business can sort of be ignored until they become a big problem. And I think um, that traction that you get when you start sharing uh, your content or you know from a unique place, the traction that you get from that and when you find something that works really helps you go a long way momentum-wise and honestly lets you ignore some other things. Like you know, if you're really starting out and something, your, your message is really resonating and um, you're doubling down because it's working, you might not actually have to care so much about taking care of your best people. I think I actually show up when uh, the sale, the wind from the sales starts dying, right? That's when it's like, hey, you know, you maybe neglected this group and, and sure you should have been taking care of that all along, but it's more um, acute right now. So I think if someone's just starting out, I would definitely spend more time finding something that works, finding your voice, uh, and then doubling down when you find that thing that's resonating. Um, and I think some of the other problems that I was just discussing maybe happen further down the road. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah, for sure. So yeah, I'll just, I'll give a good visual so people can picture it. You have to create the purple cow, which you probably read purple cow by Seth Godin. I'm not sure, but you have to create the purple cow, which is something that stands out. That's, you know, unique, your voice, you're the only, uh, once you can do that, then you need to milk the cow, which is sort of doubling down, you know, really, uh, advancing, I guess, with what you've got. And then if the cow runs out of milk, that's one area that I help show up in because now it's like, how do you sort of get to the next step? So there's different areas, I suppose, of, of problem. That makes sense. And, and so my guess is to you, this is both art and science in how to do this, coming in, finding that problem, because what is a problem in, in the essence of it? It's wondering what the next step is. What is the correct next step to take in the evolution of the business to reach a certain objective and a certain goal? You know, one of the things that I think is is very clear about the path you've taken in, in your experience with your businesses and your career is a constant refinement, not stopping once you've gotten to a certain place and be like, okay, I know everything now. You know, recognizing that art is not a static thing. Um, and the more businesses you work on, the more situations you work on, the more nuanced you're going to be able to be when you come into a situation and look at somebody's business, see where they're at, and then know, okay, this is the ideal next step for you to take. But again, like, I mean, <laughs> I, I kind of want you to explain your genius to me. How are you looking at things so that you have a higher probability of seeing what people uh, should be doing in certain situations? Yeah, these are great questions. So uh, a few thoughts. The first thing is that, and I said this a, a few minutes ago, identifying the problem gets you 50, if not more percent there. Um, and so sometimes when you just define the problem and understand it really clearly, the path of the next step becomes really clear to you. Um, so that's actually, I think, if you, if I was to say what I think I help people with is where I'd like to be and where I think I'm continuing to head is actually definitely further away from the science piece of this um, and much more to, I guess, the art, which is all nuance. Um, and that's just essentially learning to see. And learning to see means learning to see the problem. And then if you help people understand and see the problem, I'm actually less interested in what the solution is at that point. And I would also say that that's, that becomes science in a good way in that I would never be able to tell you what's going to work or what doesn't work. I just know that our intuition based on understanding the problem is going to lead to steps that give us momentum, half of which will not work. Um, and that's just like a, by the nature of, you know, experimenting essentially, you know, a lot of, a lot of stuff in business is experimenting. Nobody has the perfect knowledge of what will work. And, um, but you know, you don't want to get caught either not developing something that is sort of unique and natural to you, like getting blocked up with your voice. Um, you don't want to be working on the wrong problem. 
you don't want to be sort of avoiding a problem and then throwing tactics without any genuine, you know, sincerity around them, which definitely won't work. Um, so I, yeah, I actually don't think I'm like, I think I'm good at helping people understand what works and what doesn't work, but I'm not somebody who has the answer about the perfect next step, but it's like, we're going to be walking in the right direction now, right? Like we are now walking North, like that was needed. You might, you know, stumble, but over the long run, I think we're all heading in the right direction. And if we do it from that kind of understand the place of understanding the problem and that genuine place, then we will find a good solution here. So what are the biggest mistakes that you see people making when they're trying to self-diagnose their own problems? I'm going to think about this for a second because that's such a good question. The first thing that comes to mind is always wrong. (laughs) (laughs) That's a conundrum. (laughs) So I think that's what a good partner leader, coach, whatever you want to, you know, teacher, et cetera. Um, I think what people who do that really well are really great at is you come to them with your problem and they help you see that you have a different problem. But when you hear it, it makes so much sense that you already have an understanding of what you want to do next. So if you're flailing, if you're trying many things in different directions and none of them seem to be working and you're then doubling down on this flailing process, which is like, I need to work harder. I need to do more things. I need to try more tactics. Um, that to me would be a sign that you don't understand the right problem. Um, so I think it's a way to maybe self-diagnose a little bit is like, Hey, if I like gut reaction is like always to like grab some other thing, some other tactic, um, like that to me is where somebody could use that, that help in seeing something different. Yeah. So the first thing that comes to your mind is probably not the real problem. I'll I'll say that's almost always the case. And the second thing is that you can become aware that you have a problem if you're really trying to do a lot of different things at once and not really having much success. And then think that if only you doubled down on how hard you work, that that would help you because I don't think it typically does. Now, you mentioned earlier that in your current personal evolution and in your career, you're moving more towards the art of things and the science, which to me in, has to entail some amount of mind work, right? You're doing a lot of contemplation and inquiry into certain things within yourself and training yourself, learning more, right? So what is the nut these days that your, your mind is so most interested in, in cracking and working on? Yes, it is 100% the case that I believe that the more nuance and sort of understanding myself uh, that I do, the the better I serve people Um, because a lot of the problems that you can help people with are problems that you've sort of seen yourself. And that way, when you work with people, you know exactly what they're feeling in that moment because you've been there. I guess it's sort of this, which is, can I build a successful oh yeah so there's two things one one thing that's like a desire that's really interesting to me and one thing that I'll share that I think is an opportunity that I see but I think other people would have as well I'm curious whether or not I can transform people's businesses continuing to go more towards the side of art which means like really helping people see a bit more clearly in their business without having to be as hands-on on like the tactic side so I guess I think the opportunity that, that I feel is is here, but also like the way that I can help people most is actually taking a bigger risk myself by not doing as many tactic focused sort of actions by getting more out of the science. So I think like that's something that's really interesting to me because I actually think it's the most effective thing. I think it's the way I can help people most, but yeah. And I, I love this idea, this like holy grail of like, my goal is for us not to continue to work together forever because if I'm good at what I do, you know, then this shouldn't take that long. Um, so refining the amount of time that I would have to work with somebody. And I think honestly, just taking a personal risk, um, being okay 
with being less involved in some of the day-to-day tactics of a business. Like that's sort of a leap for me just because it's just not how most things I guess are set. Um, and it's not like, yeah, the way that every, I guess, business relationship is structured as well. Um, so yeah, I think that like personally, the opportunity to serve people in that way is really interesting to me. Um, I really like this idea of, of having less clients, but spending more time thinking and focusing on them. Wait, that sounds like a contradiction. So the first thing you said was that you want to have this kind of like, I don't know why I'm thinking of like Kung Fu Panda right now, but you know, like <laughs> spot on the body where you just like touch it in the right way, yes. and completely shut yes. things down. But at the same time, you're saying less clients, more time. I would feel like if the first one was successful, you would have less clients and less time. So the the good thing about, the interesting thing about myself and all people is that there are many different problems that arise. <laughs> Um, and, and actually as the world changes, you know, there's many areas to look and I'm not saying that's like an extraordinary amount of time, like, um, but yeah, can I do the Kung Fu Panda thing for somebody, um, over the course of a year or a course of two years, but each time that happens, we're moving to a completely different area. Um, so I think that's the way that you would do it. You're just more precise on every touch point. Yeah. So I, I think the same problems are arising, but I become more precise with each touch point. Um, but I guess the reason for having less clients is just more so that I can have more space in how we work together um, and be more precise about how I work with them. You know, if I have too many people I'm talking to, then I don't feel like I get to spend enough time um, being helpful or attentive or really listening, like we were talking about earlier, to, to each person. Um, so that's something I'm kind of exploring. Um, that I just think is an interesting way. I'm not saying this is what I'll end up doing, but it's like an interesting way to sort of build uh, this part of my career. Um, and and we could always discuss this another time, but um, yeah, I'm in an interesting spot in that. So I started a company and um, after a few years, it's called Death of the Stock Photo. It's a subscription business for premium um, stock media, photo, video. I think it's a lot more than that. I think the people who sign up and use our service recognize it's a lot more than that. Um, but after a few years of, of building that business, and this is sort of what we talked about today, uh, I sort of both plateaued, but also became aware that I owned a company. <laughs> and in becoming self-aware that I owned a company, I became reactive and defensive. And I did not, um, I didn't have that voice that I had in the beginning. And through a long process of sort of uh, discovery with that, I um, actually removed myself from the day-to-day of the business, hired Sean Singh, who's an amazing CEO of the company. Um, And that led me to this next chapter, which is like, what does it look like for somebody to step outside their business and and, you you finally get that thing you wanted, which is to build a company and then sort of, you know, remove yourself from it. But now what, Right. Um, and so I'm in that interesting phase in taking what I learned through what actually was a really difficult period um, of about two years in sort of working through why I was so stuck all of a sudden, why I wasn't showing up like I used to, um, why I got shingles, which is another story for another day, which is a stress-related uh, you know, uh, ailment that is, I'm not supposed to have at my age. Um, and then yeah, this, this journey that I'm on now of what does it look like to sort of build the next chapter. So yeah, I'm really inspired and interested in just sort of seeing this is where I think I'm heading naturally and it feels good. Um, but it's sort of like, you know, is, is there a lot here? Is there as much depth here as I think there is? And I, and I think there is. So, um, it's been really exciting. My, my perspective of it for what it's worth is there definitely is. And I think that, you've already been on that path with, with all the transitions that you've been making. I mean, it's because it's a constant refinement, you know, like how to do, do more with less. Um, you know, and my journey with member mouse sounds very similar to, you know, your journey with death to the stock photo. Um, it starts off as a creative endeavor. Hey, I'm just doing this because I'm interested. It's something that I want to do. It's not, wasn't the intention to build a company. And then stuff happens, success happens, and it's like, oh, wait a second. Like now I'm being asked to play roles that I didn't sign up for, 
right? And then you have that choice. Well, do I resist that and continue to play the role that I'm comfortable with, which is the creative role in my case, or do I make adjustments to become what is needed for this this thing that's been created and is now taking on a life of its own? And that hasn't stopped. I don't even know what a CEO is. Don't ask me. I don't know what it is. <laughs> yeah. You know, because to me, like my role constantly evolves and it, it's like the change that happens tells me what I'm supposed to be doing. I think if we're lucky, the things that we're involved in do ask us to change and do ask us to try new things because I've also in the period of resistance where I resisted changing, I also ended up with certain stress-related illnesses and other things because I think disease is a resistance to change. And I think ultimately when we give into following what change is happening, it seems obvious. The whole time we were resisting it, it seemed like such a a thing, but really all we were doing was we were caught in the current of a river, but holding onto a branch and not wanting to let go of that. But then when you get caught in this current of the change, it carries you pretty much is what I find. Sometimes it can be uncomfortable when it changes and you get, we get comfortable with the way things are for a period of time. But ultimately, like I, I kind of feel like I can't take ownership of any of the success that happened. Any of the major insights that have come to me, where do they come from? I act on them, but you know, I can't take ownership. Yeah, no, I, I would totally agree. And I think it's uh, beautiful to highlight that, <laughs> that story and, you know, the struggle and, and what you learned. And I think, you know, that's the way that we help other people see possibility or, you know, sign up for something. I mean, this is sort of the authentic, I guess, storytelling that, that we were discussing earlier in that um, it's just genuine. Um, and it's, it's what you're seeing. It's, it's who you are. Uh, you know, it's not, not a tactic for X, Y, and Z. Right. And sometimes the most helpful advice or support that I've gotten from people is just from somebody who's been there and they say, yeah, like, sounds about right you know, you'll get through it. It's not about, oh, you know, you're in a situation that's a problem. Let me give you a tactic to get you out of it. No, it's just, oh yeah, you know, that's, that's a stage, you know, I've been there and, uh, you'll get through it. So just do your best and keep moving. Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, you said it again, beautifully, it's using the changes that are coming and, and not, you know, as we dig our heels in, we get stuck. And as we allow the change to happen and we move with it, um, like you said, suddenly you just feel like you're uh, taking action. You're not even having to really think about it that much. I think the best things at work happen when we're not overthinking it and we're not uh, attempting to make it something it's not. And those are really fun periods to be in. Um, but I guess both are necessary. Exactly. So um, as we wrap this up, is there anything that we haven't touched on that you want to talk about or, or say? Uh, nothing really comes to mind. Thank you. Thank your team. Uh, thanks to your team for uh, just organizing this. And I really appreciate you opening the floor to have a discussion like this. I know you threw out a little bit of the, the general flow of things. I appreciate that. I, I feel like I am better with uh, less structure in some ways. So thank you. And, um, yeah, I think, uh, you know, if people want to check out my newsletter, creative-caffeine.com, um, is a good place to do that. I write pretty regularly there. Uh, I have a, a course on community building that has been really fun to help people with. Um, I actually like email back and forth with all the people who take that. That's called generously human. I think I maybe sent that to you all. Um, and yeah, hopefully, you know, I'm, I'm just continuing to experiment and, and try stuff. So I think, if you check out my site and see a bunch of experiments, that's because I'm trying stuff out and seeing, seeing what works. But, um, this discussion we've had today is, is definitely been the main focus. Um, and has really been, yeah, a joy, I think to, to think about and work on. And so thanks for letting me share some of that. My pleasure. And it's been really 
uh, a great pleasure talking to you about this. It's also stuff that I'm really interested in. So we'll share all the all the sites you just mentioned in the show notes for people so they know exactly where to find things. And again, yeah, thanks for taking the time coming on the show. It's been great. Awesome. Thanks. Many thanks to David for coming on the show today and sharing his perspective so openly and honestly. This conversation was a breath of fresh air for me, and I hope it was for you as well. To learn more about David and what he's up to, you can visit davidthebrand.com. There you can sign up for his different newsletters and see all the different projects he's working on. For a full list of all the resources mentioned in this episode and a transcript, head over to subscriptionentrepreneur.com slash 118. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. Stay tuned for our next episode. I feel like I say this a lot, but it's going to be a really special episode. In it, we interview Robbie Baxter, the best-selling author of The Membership Economy. Robbie has worked with membership and subscription businesses of all sizes, from solopreneurs to Netflix. In our conversation, we dive deep into the topic of pricing for memberships and explore best practices for entrepreneurs. You won't want to miss it. Thank you again for listening to the Subscription Entrepreneur Podcast. See you next time.